little bit of a change of schedule. Our uh, guest speaker will be coming and joining us after lunch. So we'll move directly into more levels of suffering. How's that? <laughs> so the, the, this session is really called the, the Dharma of Discomfort. And, and we're lucky that we're switching it because it'll be shorter since it's before lunch than if it were after lunch. So it, as we were all merrily sort of avoiding discomfort, suffering, and so forth, and coming back together, now we'll have an opportunity to practice together. Um, so I want to say a little bit about this, and then we'll do an exercise together of um, really opening to the suffering that is going on for us in our bodies, our psyches, our lives, perhaps our spirits. It'll be different for everyone. So I think the most important thing is to just get become more and more present to what's going on with you right now. And then listen. So what what is suffering? You know, what is suffering? Usually we define it as the subjective response to pain, discomfort, lack of harmony, you know, whether that's physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual. I don't really see it as the same as pain. You know, pain can be happening, and whether we're suffering with that, it, the suffer, pain is given, suffering is optional much of the time. And I say this... Um, in the sense of living with someone who's in constant pain, but he's not in constant suffering. And he attributes, you know, his 55-year practice to that. Um, that, that, that the Dharma and some skillful uh, ways of dealing with his physical pain, his physical pain, is is most of the time able to manage all that in a way where the the pain's there, it's in the background, but he he doesn't own him, doesn't own him, and I, I would imagine we all have had that experience. Um, you know, there can be really mild discomfort, like uh, your coffee doesn't take quite right in the morning, and it's like. Ugh. And we can really suffer that, you know. It can kind of set us in a bad mood and kind of for the whole day. We can hang on to that. Oh, it's what I'm not surprised. Whatever the thing is, you know. The wrong brand. I couldn't get. Now they're having a hazelnut shortage, so I couldn't get that extra hazelnut for my coffee. You know, and another person would be like, what? But they can be very small. Or, you know, we can be someone who suffers from migraines. And you know how when, if you have ever had one, how when they come on and they can just take over your whole body mind completely and you just want to be unconscious. And I've had that experience. So I'm suffering profoundly. And learning to be with that when it comes on so quickly um, and then finding a way to accommodate so that the suffering is eased a bit, um, that's a big deal. And so 
you know, we have these huge ranges for ourselves and for those that we live with and those we serve where pain's going to be there. It's going to be there, you know. You lose someone, it's going to hurt. I love the story of the Buddha when his best friend was at Ananda who died. And, you know, this was after he was an enlightened being. And they said to them, well, how do you feel? You know, because you're the Buddha, you're enlightened. And he says, uh, I feel as if the stars and the moon and the sun have fallen out of the sky. You know, the sadness is there. It's real. It's experienced. It's felt. But it didn't own him. It's where he was. It's where he was. Um, I would also ask you to begin to kind of scan for yourself and um, we're all of an age and have had enough experiences that you know where your primary site of chronic suffering tends to be. Um, You know, fortunately in my life, my husband has this very sunny personality. So while he has physical pain, he doesn't have a lot of emotional or uh, uh, pain. Uh, on the other hand, I'm like this super healthy, robust person, and my, for a variety of complicated reasons, my area of greatest suffering usually is emotional suffering that comes from um, the karma of my family, my family system, and my own physiology, and how that mixes up with uh, the neurological dimension of emotion, and just my uh, incredibly empathetic sensibility which requires a certain kind of work around boundaries so you know I know that and when I was first discovering that as it might be the case for some of you when you're first discovering your place of greatest pain that leads to your suffering you don't want it you're pushing against it uh, you're resisting it's hard to accept Um, why me all of that for me, it was like, oh, no. You know, I had kept this kind of locked up for the first 30 years of my life without much trauma around it. And as I reached that midlife point where you kind of are invited to deeper truths about yourself if you're going to have a life that's real, I began to kind of unravel around certain things. And I thought I'd never make my way through it um, And I was amazed to discover, you know, in my mid-40s, the Dharma and what it really provides as far as that ease, even from the beginning, just a little bit of space between the pain and the suffering. Just a little bit of capacity to look in between. Um, But that also was... Uh, what also really made a difference with that was the fact that, that, that we have not only the practice, you know, the way, the Dharma itself, the refuge of the precepts, but that there is an, are examples of folks who kind of have made it through, both living in and past. And then the biggest help for me was the Sangha, the people that I was able to sit with and practice with together 
because I could kind of lay that burden down a little bit in a, in a way that I just couldn't by myself. Uh, I just couldn't in my family. I just couldn't with my therapist. Um, there is a way in which I could do that with my fellow chaplains because we were kind of walking certain truths together. Huge support for me. But the sangha, just the practice in silence, you know, without really having to explain or talk or uh, even name what I was feeling. Just be with it. Just see what happens. See what rises. See what falls away. See how it's not the same every minute. Uh, See how, like, labor pains, for those of you who've had children or been present when children were being birthed, you know, it comes and it goes. Not every minute is the most intense point of it. Thank God. It's a process. And just like that is going somewhere for the most of for the most part, it's a process designed to birth a live child. For uh, me, that practice in the group, in the sangha, allowed sort of that glacial melting away of so much of the um, pain that I held emotionally in my body over all those years of not acknowledging it and not being in communities where it was easy to acknowledge. Um, So that now it's, I understand it. Ah, you know, ah, sadness, ah, depression. Here you are, you know, that little child that started when that first started. I know more about it in that sense. I, I, I've seen that. It's um, so much softer. You know, I can be a grandmother to my own pain, painful self. And I, you know, and I had people who held me and loved me when I was little, so I know what that feels like. And I can move into that feeling and, and, and take that grip when it happens and be with it in that way. Um, and so that process of investigation so valuable and in a certain way it's so gentle and so compassionate there's so much wisdom in the practice Um, we're so fortunate we are so fortunate when I work with this topic in a normal normal, in in a normative CPE class where you have people from lots of different faith traditions who are really practicing in their different faith traditions um, and we talk about how how Judaism looks at suffering and how Catholicism looks at suffering and how Islam looks at suffering and how how indigenous people deal with suffering. And, and then we get to how Buddhism deals with suffering. And there's for me, it's like my whole body smiles when we get to, to Buddhism because they're actually, that's the focus. And it's from the very first day. It, it, the One of the doors is, is the experience of suffering, you know? Um, you know, some enter through the, the sense of no self. Some enter directly through that sense of impermanence. A whole lot of folks enter through that door of suffering. That's where that's what brings us to the feet of the practice. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how some of these other traditions view suffering and how that kind of bubbles up in when you're doing helping work. Yes. 
Okay. So this concept of pain is given and suffering is almost always optional? Not almost always optional. Pain is given, suffering is optional. This is an aspiration. Okay, so... And it it is possible to be true. (laughs) So... I, this question comes up for me when this topic is addressed, and I'd like to ask it. What about situations where people have no control, like I'm thinking in terms of people that live in abusive relationships that they can't get out of, or people that live in slavery? What is the line between the pain and the suffering in those situations, and how is the suffering optional? You know, when you pile layer upon layer upon layer of pain on a particular person or a particular people, you're not starting out with a place where suffering is optional. You're probably seeing a lot of suffering right at the moment. But there are gaps, so which can give give uh, illustrate the fact that this is true, even in such situations. I grew up in, in a family where we were a people who were survivors of genocide. It was not a happy home. This cloud of that experience, which is giant, hung over the family and, and manifested in different ways in each family member and wasn't spoken about. So we didn't even know that that was part of what was going on. But there was laughter. There was celebration. There was... Um, uh, relationship and love, and there were moments where it, the suffering receded. It wasn't a constant. Now our lives weren't in danger. You know, you try you bring more and more layers of this, and you can see how it just begins to collapse into itself. Obviously, that's going to be more likely if someone is removed from an experience where their their very existence is at risk every moment. You know, war zones and abusive situations and in homes where there's really active abuse and neglect of children that yes i mean of course there's profound suffering and that's going to not be relieved um until there's a change in the situation so it's kind of two sides of that equation um because the one thing that even someone in um a situation like that has a little control of is the awareness of what they feel. And even in that, even in that with just the breath, there's a little gap. There's a little something. Otherwise, why would anyone keep living? You know, so it's that impulse to just have that little space. It's not much. And I wouldn't even say it's free from suffering, but the suffering rises and falls even within the context of what you're talking about. Does that give a little... Would you want to say anything about that? A friend of mine who uh, teaches Buddhism in the prisons uh, has uh, reframed the Four Noble Truths with the statement don't make it worse and so I think it's easier to see where our responsibility is if with that kind of idea don't make it worse and um, it doesn't necessarily doesn't doesn't because what you're pointing to is it's very hard in these kinds of severe forms of oppression um, 
<clears throat> to hear that you're responsible for your own suffering. And uh, we are in a certain way, but you don't want to tell people. It's like putting salt in the wound and actually making it worse because it's so hard. But I've known people in tremendous forms of oppression who uh, saw the light through it. And uh, so it's kind of like um, if, you, if you have an umbrella, then you're responsible for whether you use it or not in the rain. <clears throat> so if you have the tools and the wherewithal to find where the freedom is uh, in forms of oppression, then uh, you're responsible whether you use it or not. But if you don't know, if you don't have that tool, if you don't know that, you can't be responsible. But if you know it, and some people, for, for who knows what karmic reasons, know it, and uh, and somehow they can be shining lights in the middle of horrible oppression, because they've discovered how to be free, and um, and other people are suffer tremendously in in situations of tremendous privilege. And they don't they, they don't see where the opening is, so it's a kind of a, a kind of a it's a it's a it's a whole spectrum of uh, of it all, and so it requires a lot of respect and care and reverence for all this and how difficult it is, and um, and you know so uh, it's a very you know it's such a beautiful and simple little cliche you know that pain is optional and suffer you know pain is required or something given, given and 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 suffering is optional. Uh, but uh, it calls on the kind of questions you, the kind of concern that you raised. So we have to be careful where we say it and how we say it. And I think that for chaplains with a background in, you know, for themselves, it's a very important insight to understand for themselves. And hopefully they carry that with them into difficult situations. And then it becomes a reference point for understanding the person you're with. Not that you're going to tell them that, but it helps you kind of maybe tease apart and understand how they're making it worse, you know, what they're contributing to it, that uh, maybe that's where it's possible to make a difference, but maybe you can't make a difference for the social oppression they're under necessarily, but you can find, let these apart, where, how are they contributing to making it worse? Thank you. Um, all of the major religions have a stance toward suffering, and we could spend a whole day exploring that. But boiling it down to kind of some really basic um, orientations toward it, for, for Judaism, there is no inherent value in, in pain or suffering. And so, so much of the tradition is oriented toward being a blessing in the world and um, righting wrongs so that suffering is eased. In Catholicism, there is value in suffering in the sense that you are one with God who suffers with us. And you're greater, the greater your capacity to be present to others in their suffering, the greater your capacity to stand in solidarity and be instruments of transformative uh, accompaniment. Um, Islam has kind of a blend of the two, Judaism and Christianity, in the sense, as I understand it, that suffering has no inherent value. But we live in a world where our first duty toward our fellow creatures is compassion. 
and compassion means suffering along with. Um, indigenous peoples, uh, thats it's almost insulting to put all indigenous peoples in the same cosmology or to say that this is what... So I'll speak from my particular tribe of native people where the Tongva Gabrielino, where suffering is expected and it comes with change and uh, can be the doorway to great transformation and is not to be feared uh, in and of itself and is to be managed uh, with others as best as possible in order to become a fully alive human being. Um, So kind of with that little... It's like the little peacock at CBS, you know, this little tiny little melting down of whole centuries of thought and experience and argument into those little messages. Uh, just so you've got a little orientation as you go in and know that this is always a central concern of any spiritual tradition. I think it's important, and and I really appreciate your articulating that, Gil, that we understand this for ourselves as we are working with other folks and have a really clear idea of our own constellation of where we hold on and where we let go and what uh, we are working with at any given moment. Often we move toward helping work like this that each of you has, has been drawn to in one way or another out of unseen and unconscious desires to ease our own pain or the pain of someone close to us where we haven't had control. And so we're ritually re-engaging with pain, ritually moving, or actually moving forward toward places where pain is with this desire to uh, exorcise it from ourselves. And that's just true. So what do you do with that? Because that can be very toxic if it's not seen and understood and it can distort the work that we do with others. So we have to kind of learn what uncomfortable truth we motivated us to do this work um, that we didn't know or expect. So I wonder if in some of your encounters while you've been part of this program, if you haven't come up against whoa, that's so much like my story and this is what it's bringing up in me. You know, partly why you might have moved forward toward this work. There's nothing really wrong with that, but we do have an obligation, I believe, to understand it as well as we can and to not make things worse, either for ourselves or for others. I think that's enough ideas for now. Um, I think what we really want to do is have you break up in dyads and ask this repeating question. Oh, yes. Question? No, no problem. Do you know anything about Hinduism? You know, I don't. I don't have that at the top of my mind. Um, Does anyone here have a knowledge about how suffering is understood in Hindu religion? Um, I know there's something in Sanskrit that says future suffering should be avoided. So that's helpful. So that's something to 
kind of look into and bring back. It'd be fun to know. All right. So, back to um, our exercise. So this time, um, I'm going to ask you to break up again into dyads, twos, and to ask the question in a repeating way, like we have with some other questions. How do you suffer? And listen to the response. Then ask again, how do you suffer? How do you suffer? Oh, you have another... No, just, this is you. This is you and your life. And, you know, I I wouldn't think about it too hard. And I wouldn't feel obligated to tell my deepest, darkest secrets. But we're all, we all have a social presence, right? And we can answer. It's not not a what question, it's a how question. It's a how. Yeah. So the the story, uh, you know, so don't go into the long story about just, it's more like your response. How do you respond? How do you suffer? How do you suffer? Yeah. Not so much what makes you suffer. Yeah. How do you suffer? And to, and to ask that question three times, four times. We'll do it for like mm, four minutes. And if there's silence, that's fine. You know. Um, and then we'll switch. And the other person will have an opportunity to answer that delicious question how do you suffer and then we'll come back together and we'll uh, talk about it does that make sense okay then my only request for the diets is that it be someone different than your first diet this morning and, and, uh, and you'll ring the bell at the time to change right I'll ring the bell to start I'll ring the bell at time to change we'll take a deep breath and a moment of silence and then we'll switch okay Thank you. <laughs> Come back. Come back. David. David's still in his reflective space, right? We definitely should, yeah. I got thrown off when our friend didn't come. I was kind of like, but yeah. Okay. All right, so we'll talk about this just a little bit. So what was that like for you? Hmm. Ah. There's something really uh, releasing about actually articulating what we know and, and naming it and sometimes naming it to another because the truth of their presence will resonate in, in a different way than any other time we've 
said these said this or realized it or whatever. Um, and I think that's why people can do this work for the long haul is when they can appreciate the freshness of each encounter. Yeah. Yeah, let's go, let's go ahead and share thoughts and observations. I'm just noticing there were all these different kinds of suffering and that my answer would change when I was thinking about different situations. But then in reflecting on that, there's the common thread with all of them is like, if I'm suffering, then somebody else is suffering too. Like, I'm, it doesn't stay with me and that is uh, that's really good motivation sometimes when it's not always easy to find for myself ah uh, the, the interconnected yeah. quality of it yeah. yeah that's big I was thinking that it was really nice to to name how instead of thinking about why because usually uh, when you bring up suffering I immediately start to <laughs> replay why do I suffer and then it's like this snowball of things um, so it was it felt or it feels more healing to just talk about how it manifests instead of the old story that I know you know Yep, the stories and the narratives and the, uh, the causes that our mind can fixate on can actually get in the way of moving through or watching the rising and falling. Yeah. Um, I thought it was not only healing to talk about the just suffering as a human thing that we all experience but for me something that came up after was just reflecting on the fact that I think I unconsciously was feeling shame just for suffering like Uh, and and to know like hey this is human (laughs) and normal and like, you don't have to feel like a bad person just for suffering. Oh, that's such an important point, and it raises something that we'll talk a little bit about this afternoon with respect to ritual and the desire to ease others' suffering. That when we suffer, there is that sometimes that sense of alienation that can be cloaked in shame because we it affects a sense of worthiness. And going deeper can actually separate you or give the experience of feeling separate and alienated from the community of whole people who who you imagine are not suffering. Um, and to encounter that and be able to be with that and just invite that, accept it, know it's part of our, our humanity, a deep part of it. Um, begins to ease that self-judgment that descends all the way to shame, which is really big. And we can only do that for others if we've done that for ourselves.
or a sense of thank you. separation from people that we think must be suffering more than we are. Owning the particularity of our own suffering is huge. Um, and really learning its dimensions, what it's like, the how of it, how it shows up for us. Yeah. Because otherwise we'll be judging grades of, oh, that's is that worthy of suffering? Is that really, you know? Yeah. Not that that might not be going on anyway, but we don't want to be attached to that. We don't want to be uh, giving into that. Hmm. I have a question and I think it's related but you can tell me if it's off topic and maybe we should ask. I should ask later. But I'm wondering, I feel like um, a lot of the conversation um, brings up this point that it's that it's maybe we don't always feel like it's okay to be open about our suffering. And I don't, you can tell me if this is not. That's kind of a, is it socially or culturally acceptable to uh speak of suffering and when Mm -hmm. and how? Is that which part of your question? Well, it's, that's kind of more like a statement. Oh, it depends on, are you talking about with respect to people you're being a chaplain for? I just, I just mean maybe in our culture, like in general, that yeah, that we're pretty um, at North American United States people as culture are pretty averse to suffering, and but you know what you'll notice, you'll notice different um, ways of dealing with that aversion based on generations. So millennials, this is, I've been studying this, and some of the social scientists find that millennials deal with suffering by being really snarky. Oh, I'm a millennial. I'm very snarky. So So that's perfectly socially acceptable. (laughs) And, you know, so you can kind of show that you're above it all in your suffering by being cynical and funny. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, boomers tend to be kind of sappily sentimental about their suffering, and so their children probably are, that's where this came from. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, so but, yeah, there, 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 there is an aversion that kind of distorts the pure experience of just expressing it in a very straightforward way, and um, culturally that is true, yeah. Well, what if, so my, my real question is, what if, what if you're... Uh, community or family dynamic or something is is you is open about suffering and like is engulfed in suffering all the time and i mean oh, yeah. like <laughs> uh <laughs> like very open about the depression and um and almost like the an integral part of the identity of the person or the family is like we're just suffering like all the time and so, so, it, so sometimes I get confused when we're having to sit with suffering and, and notice it or something because it seems like, um, it seems like it's difficult for me to understand how, like, when is it enough? Yeah, because I hear it's that all the time. Well, there's, it, it's it's a little bit like what um, the famous psychologist Jung said. You know, that there's a redemptive suffering and there's a neurotic suffering. And 
to actually sort of sink into a narrative that just keeps repeating and that becomes part of one's identity in a way that has no way out or through or no transformative quality to it, that, that's sort of like idiot suffering. You know, we talk about idiot compassion. There's idiot suffering, you know, where we're just, it's, you know, and you, you have an, ins- I can hear it. There's an instinctive dimension of you saying, this isn't good, so why would I keep doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, and when you have that sense in a community or a family, there's the Irish and the Mexican side of my family, which can be very much like that. And it's like, ah, la, la Llorona, we're hearing it again. Mom, stop crying, you know. It's enough already. It, it, you can be so internalized that there's no, no way out. It's a loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're talking about here is trying to get in, tr- in touch with a really the fresh edge, not the old narrative, not the loop, not the thoughts. Where is it in the body? How is it showing up in your life? Where is it holding you back, you know? having a, a place to explore that in a really genuine way with a teacher or a, or a therapist or a supervisor is useful or good, you know, a friend where you do that for each other. But you know when it's fresh and you're learning something new and it's actually, you're becoming freer from it yes. and when you're not. So that's some thoughts and Gil might have some thoughts too. It's a big, big subject. So I'm going to close this session, if you will indulge me for just a little bit, by telling one of my Preston stories. So I have this very precocious, precocious three-year-old grandson, and one of the things he loves to do is imaginative play. And right now, the um, characters that I'm assigned to play with are three sisters called Selena, Hurry, and Kimi, who he named, even though they're my characters. Um, and his latest thing has been that when Selena gets sad, she, oh, because he saw Alice in Wonderland, she cries oceans of tears, oceans of tears, and the tears, the ocean gets so big that she slips off the table and goes across the floor and under the chair, and she has to be in the cave of sadness until the ocean dries up. And so that's been uh, an image that I've been using of, you know, when, when you're, when you're saying how big is this pain how big is this whatever is like is it is it the ocean of tears or and is there a cave that you can cuddle in until the ocean recedes um and i think that's partly what our practice is you know is to be able to actually see that ocean of tears be okay with it find our cave our refuge uh, in our practice and we know everything changes what what rises will fall and we'll be able to climb out on the sand and you know be a little bit in the summer sun so We do it together. Yeah. And I just invite you to find a way to do it in a way that stays fresh and that leads to more and more ease. Yeah. Okay. Um... Walt Opie is here. He's going to present this afternoon on addiction. And Walt is a graduate from our program, and I'll say more about him. Uh, but uh, uh, he's going to be here for lunch. So uh, he also does a lot of work in the prisons. Uh, he teaches uh, uh, with the B- uh, Buddhist Pathway Prison uh, Project that Amanda's in. And, and uh, Juliana? Uh, uh, I don't know. Is that my name? I forget, I, I, I'm, I'm blanking. <laughs>
<laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, and um, so if you, ha- if you do that kind of work, you might want to talk to him. He's also done, um, helped, he's taught uh, addiction retreats, recovery retreats. And, and uh, so he knows, he knows, you know, he's now being trained to be a uh, teacher, a Buddhist teacher through uh, IMS, Inside Meditation Society and IRC. So he has a big background in the Vipassana practice and these different areas. So if you could talk to him at lunch if you'd like. And I wanted to introduce him also because we're going to read the group agreements. And uh, since he's going to be talking in the afternoon about this tender topic of addiction and truth, uh, I thought it would be nice for him to also kind of hear the agreements and know that's part of what we do. And um, so I don't know who's going to read them today. All right, um, group agreements. Try on. On new processes, ideas, perspectives before automatically rejecting them because they are different than your experience. Be willing to step out of your comfort zone. It's okay to disagree. Disagreements is is a necessary part of accepting differences. It's not okay to attach or blame self or others. This can happen on a verbal or nonverbal level. Practice self-focus. Use I statements. Pay attention to what you are feeling and thinking. Ask questions of self and other. Instead of jumping to conclusions, check out your own assumptions. Practice both and thinking and speaking. There are multiple realities of each person's present. The notion of either either or right slash wrong, good slash bad is not helpful in human relationships. It sets up a hierarchy of values. A hundred percent responsibility. You know more than anyone what you need. Let go of all the other things you need to be doing and be present in this process. Participation looks different for everyone. Be aware of how you learn and process information. Intent versus impact. There is a difference between what we intend and what the impact is on another It is important to accept when the impact is negative and seek to understand why without jumping to an explanation or apology. Assume benevolence of intent. Maintain confidentiality. Anything said of personal nature can be shared, cannot be shared without the person's permission. If you want to talk to someone about what they said, ask permission. They can say yes, no, or maybe later. Move up, move back. Be aware of how much you are speaking. If you feel you are speaking a lot, let others speak. Ask yourself, wait, why am I talking? If you find yourself not talking, try to contribute some thoughts. Thank you. And... um So the half of the group that was supposed to go to San Quentin wasn't able to a second time. And um, the explanation I've been given is that all the state prisons are more challenged these days because 
in order to save money, they're now no longer keeping certain populations segregated. And so as they're bringing them together, they're segregated for, for reasons, very good reasons, because if they're brought together, there's violence and, and killing that goes on. And, um, and so now that they're bringing these different populations together, that's what's happening. And when there's violence and someone gets killed, then the, the, what's common is the prison goes into lockdown. And so, um, and so uh, St. Quentin's has, has it relatively not too bad. Something like Folsom is pretty bad, right? Folsom is, I think there's uh, something serious that goes on almost every week. Or, and um, so, um, uh, however, Jacques, who runs the program there, is eager to have us come. And, uh, and he, his program that he's in, what it's, we're supposed to graduate in May, and finish, but because of so many lockdowns, they're delayed as well. So he's offered some other dates to come. And the two that uh, would work for Christina to go, that Jacques offers, are uh, May 3rd and May 10th. So uh, of those of you who, um, uh, who are going to go to San Quentin, how many of you are available on those two days? So, so how many? How many can? How many can come on both? How many can come on both days? We don't. We're still waiting for people to look at their calendar. Let's wait. To wait a little bit longer. Maybe what we should ask is who can't do both days? Which, which of those two days? Can you do one of those two days? Uh huh. You can't do either one. So, could except for Susan, can everyone do? Can you do the third of May? So, should we try again? Let's try again, third of May, Friday, and uh, I'll send uh, your information one more time to get clearance and send Christina's. I won't be able to make it this time, and um, so Christina is a little bit, uh, you know, faculty, but she's not really in charge. Don't, let's not burden her with that. But um, who, who has been in the prison before? Who's going? Who's going? You, you're in prison before? And you're, you're, who are going? Uh, on, in San Quentin? Maybe one of you could kind of a little bit uh, be kind of the coordinator. Uh, once you were there, just to you know, keep people off to the side or, you know, just... just it's not going to require much, but... Maybe both of you. Just keep an eye on things and you, and you can be the... Hold, yeah. Both of you. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yes? Um, I have a conflict on the third. Oh. Uh, No, uh, Stephanie said that she's only available the third. Is that is that you're pretty set for on the tenth? Can't do it. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, so I will email Jacques about the third. Thank, thank you. And uh, let's take lunch, and we'll start again in here at uh, one o'clock.